Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Hey guys, it's Rebecca. If you listen all the way to the end of this podcast, past the credits, past those outtakes that we put after the credits, I've added a little special something. It's a sneak peek of the podcast I've been working on, HGTV and Me. It doesn't drop for a few months, but I'm going to be dropping a few trailers in the meantime, and I want you guys to check them out and then subscribe if you want to. It will really help me out. Thanks a lot, and enjoy the show. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Father's Day is here and Sock Fancy <laughs> makes the perfect Father's Day gift. It does. So give your dad the joy of unique, awe-inspiring, and sometimes bizarre socks delivered every single month. Shipping is free all over the world. And if you don't like the pair you get, you can send them back and swap for a fresh design. It truly is the gift that keeps on giving. Now is the time. Simply sign your loved one up for a three-month, six-month, nine-month, or year-long subscription to Sock Fancy, and they'll handle the rest. And get an extra pair of socks added to any subscription for free when you go to SockFancy.com crime. Right now, enter code CRIME at checkout. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And this week, a seven-part true crime documentary from Netflix called The Keepers. Joining me right now, oh, by the way, all of Twitter just breathed a huge sigh of relief right now when they heard me say that, right? I know people even today are like, are you going to review the, the keepers? And I went, what is that now? What, what? <laughs> so joining me right now to do just that is my true crime co-author and real life husband, the host of the award nominated podcast. Mm. These are their stories. The Law and Order podcast, Kevin Flynn. Congratulations and hello, Kevin. Rebecca LaVoy, please report to the guidance counselor's office. Oh, no. No. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, and my favorite certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. And finally, the co-host of the podcast, Radio Free Dystopia, and the author of the City Trilogy of Dystopic Noir Novels, our favorite hater of all the things I like, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Let's go O's. (laughs) What does that mean? It's something you you say when you're rooting for the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, that's a sports Who roots for the Baltimore Orioles? Not Father Uh, Maskell. Probably not. You know, I I can't, I don't know what his allegiances are. (laughs) He likes the Cardinals. Yeah. Get it? He probably does. Get it? He probably does. And the Padres. Oh, my God. Uh, So, Kevin, I mentioned there in the intro that you are the host of an award-nominated podcast. Award-nominated. No, I don't think you should be cynical about this. There are very few podcast awards 
And yeah. this is a, a legit one that is real it? people... Did you not look at last year's winners? Oh, yeah. And who showed just... up to collect those awards? <laughs> yes, I did. I did. When, fill people in on what we're even talking about. So the podcast movement conference is, is, is happening this summer. And that's one of those conferences where like a lot of like podcasters come together. Big and small like us. Big and small. And they have an award ceremony like many conferences do. They have the Academy of Podcasting. Which, by the way, good for them for branding that. Like yeah, I can hard, I can almost say it with a straight face. And they uh, released their nominations for podcasts this week, and they used basically all of the iTunes podcast categories. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look like in every category, in every single category, there are podcasts produced by NPR yeah. and Gimlet. There are 18 like, different categories with 10 nominees in each. Right, which, by the way, is not dissimilar from the Oscars. So don't like poo-poo yourself, Kevin. <laughs> and in the Do t- you have to pay to go to the Oscars? You don't have to pay to go to this. They told us. No, I'm just pay. Well, okay. Fine. Jesus, it's Kevin. not a scam. Keep it's, going. Stop it. You're just being. <laughs> you know what? You're being like um, self-deprecating about it because you can't believe you were nominated. Our little podcast. These are their stories. The Law and Order podcast, which we literally make in a closet in our basement, is up against the likes of the NPR Pop Culture Happy Hour. They suck. And the West Wing Weekly podcast, which actually features like people who are on the West Wing, you should be very proud of this nomination. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, it just kind of came out of nowhere. I don't know how we were nominated. Maybe it was one of our great crime writers on, or or these are our stories listeners that put a bug in someone's ear. Maybe it's actually a good podcast, and the judges maybe it's actually a good podcast. I know we have a lot of crossover people and. Although I don't get a chance to say it much on the other podcast, I do appreciate the folks that followed us over from Crime Writers On to listen to us babble on about Law and Order. And the funny thing is that when we started this, I didn't like Law and Order. <laughs> That's why I was the host. I wasn't the fan. You were the fan. And look at you now. Well, I had to do some research and we, I put a lot into it. We did an episode this week, guys, where we talked about an episode of SVU. This is coming out, what, next week? This episode? Next week. It is a peak SVU it's, episode. It's the one with John Stamos, where he gets blown up by yeah, a knife filled like, with compressed oh, CO2. He it's a sta- it's, wait, what? Yeah, I know. A knife? A knife filled with compressed CO2. He blows up like a meat balloon. I just can't say anything more than that. <laughs> oh, you have God, to just you have no. to tune into award nominated. These are their stories. <laughs> you were so excited when you watched this episode of SVU. Usually, Kevin watches these episodes of Law and Order SVU sort of like begrudgingly, like I have to watch this because I got roped into hosting this podcast about the show that I don't like. And this week, he watched the episode of SVU that we were going to be talking about with our special guest, uh, Jillian Pensavalli. And he was like, Rebecca, I just finished watching this episode. You have to come watch it immediately. I'm like, I think I've seen that one. He's like, no, 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 no. If you don't, by the look on your face, you do not remember what it was about. So anyway, congratulations, Kevin. Thank you very much. Can't May- you just be grateful and not so self No, 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 I, I am. It's actually like, I just want to thank the Academy <laughs> for having the opportunity to say, I'd like to thank the Academy. The Academy of Podcasters? Uh, it, it's Whether or not same. it's real? all the same goes on my grave it is all the same all right so i want to make one programming note next week we are going to be talking about the new podcast from american public media slash minnesota public radio the same fine folks who brought us the in the dark podcast they have a new podcast called 74 seconds and it sounds very interesting and we're going to be talking about that next week so that's not homework we're just letting you know in advance what we're going to be talking about 
Right? All right? Yep. All right. So we have gotten a bunch of follow-up on our conversation from the HBO documentary, Mommy, Dead, and Dearest, last week. Um, there were a lot of people who perhaps knew a little bit more about the case than we did. <laughs> um, oh, that never happens. And also just knew more about some of the stuff we talked about than we did. Yeah. Um, one of the pieces of feedback we got from a few listeners was that people with feeding tubes, they can also eat. Yeah. So that was me. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. And I thank you very much to all the parents with kids with feeding tubes who wrote to us and filled but me you in. If you, will, you wouldn't know unless you've had that experience in your family or right. something like that. Yeah. Nonetheless, huh. it is not elective surgery. Nonetheless, it's not something you would unless do to someone you can, who didn't need it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then we also got an email from our listener, Elizabeth. She uh, let us know that the director of Mommy, Dead, and Dearest was on a recent episode of the Generation Y podcast. We'll post a link to that episode on our website, crimewriterson.com. Elizabeth says that that interview answered many of the questions we had about Dee Dee Blanchard, how she was able to pull off the incredible Munchausen by proxy fraud that we saw in Mommy, Dead, and Dearest. So, guys, I'm just going to run down a few of these uh, things to you, and I'd like you to react to them. I did, by the way, check to make sure that and this is like a source from a source, but mm-hmm. it's actually all true. I looked okay. it all up today. But I just want to thank Elizabeth for, like, cueing me into all these facts. One of the things that she says is that Dee Dee, Gypsy's mom, was a nurse. What does no. that tell you? She had some medical knowledge about how things went. Hmm. Yeah. Another thing that uh, she mentioned was that, Toby, remember you had that question about the uh, faking of medical records? Yep. Remember in the documentary, there was that sort of passing note about the fact that they had that house built because they were Hurricane Katrina refugees? Oh, yeah. So apparently, either all the medical records were destroyed by Hurricane Katrina, or Dee Dee said all those medical records were destroyed in Hurricane Katrina. Does that not help with that part of the narrative? So is that why a, a couple of people on Facebook who are in the medical profession were saying that they couldn't figure out the part that they couldn't figure out? They were explaining the feeding tube thing, but about how how is she faking the leukemia test? Right. And basically, I guess this, the story is that she that she was able to say these medical records, the records were lost. Exactly. And she was able to reconstruct them in a way that she was uniquely positioned. Combined with her own knowledge of medicine. As so being she just wrote a note and said, my daughter totally has leukemia. And they were like, And again, right. if she, you saw like the photos of her. She rolls in in a, a wheelchair. With and, a feeding and, tube. With a feeding tube. And mom says, it's this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I think a doctor isn't going to be necessarily be skeptical, like, oh, someone's pulling the wool over my eyes here on this one, you know? I think you, you go along with uh, what it appears to be, and you you go from there. I, I can see a little more clearly why a physician would fall for that. I actually heard from a friend of mine who used to work in a hospital um, in, like, a larger area, not in New Hampshire, that, because I was, you know, saying last week, how is it possible that she was able to do this in the hospital? Don't the hospitals keep an eye out for this? And I guess in some hospitals, they actually have hidden cameras in certain rooms. Whoa. So oh. when, this is a little known secret, so when parents not anymore, Laura, child, <laughs> I know, now, now you Munchausen people are going to get away with it, but they might put somebody in a room if they suspect it's a, like, 
like a Munchausen case or a child abuse case so that they can kind of covertly watch what's going on. There goes our sponsor, Munchausen.com. <laughs> <laughs> Munchausen nanny cam. <laughs> it's in the teddy bear. Uh, we had another listener um, on Twitter, Splanchick, who's like a very like prolific tweeter of ours. Who I, She's wicked smart. We adore she's wicked smart. Yeah. She was very upset that we never discussed... The amazing Cajun accents in Mommy and Dearest of the dad and stepmother. They're great, actually, yeah. Does anybody just want to like weigh in and just give that like a nod? Obviously, it makes sense, but it does sound slightly French-Canadian because they both have that sort of French-Creole sort of origin, but mm-hmm. they, they, it sounded a little like Atlantic-Canadian to me. I mean, you know, Cajun, you know, sort of is a is a kind of French dialect. That yes, came and do you know like, where that word Cajun comes from? No, actually, I don't. Okay, I actually know something, guys. You know a lot about entomology. I can't believe this. This is one thing that I know. So, I went to Nova Scotia on a trip once. Uh-huh. Do you know about the Acadians? The Acadians? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Do you know the Acadians were native like people? driven out of Nova Scotia? You know where they went? Louisiana? Yes. The word Cajun is actually a shortened, like, uh, transmogrified version of Acadian. Mm-hmm. And so there is actually a lingual connection yeah. between the f- French-Canadian, uh, Acadian, entire culture up there uh-huh. in Canada and the Cajuns in Louisiana. Uh-huh. They drove them the fuck out of Nova Scotia. That's a long way to go. Louisiana. <laughs> really did. And they're like, hey, Napoleon has a big swath of land of the they south. They did not mess around. And I will tell our Keep listeners going. this. Yeah. Uh, Nova Scotia is beautiful. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Nova Scotia is so great. Every single attraction slash monument slash thing to visit in Nova Scotia is completely surrounded in tragedy. Whether it's the, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> whether it's the all the bodies from the Titanic <laughs> washed exactly. up here. Yeah. There's a huge graveyard of Titanic dead people. Uh-huh. There's this oh, enormous thing in Halifax with this like bridge explosion, and like everything in Halifax is all about like all this poor. Victims of this bridge explosion. And is that then how you get famous there? And is then you... there's all of these Acadian, like, Toby, it's it's like very, very sad at the same time yeah. that it's beautiful, right? Yeah, so like uh, in Lunenburg, which is this very sort of quaint fishing village, there's a big monument to fishermen who are lost at sea. And you just go and look at it and you'll see like an entire extended family lost in the same year. Like their boat went down while they're out fishing. So it's, I mean, there's a ton of names, but it's, you know, you can see these entire, the male part of these entire families just dying in one fell swoop because they're out fishing, I guess, in George's Bank, which is where the perfect storm stuff happens. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's it's gorgeous. You're really selling me on this. (laughs) So which one of our uh, listeners from Nova Scotia want to put the four of us up for a long weekend? No, I'm telling you, it is a beautiful, wonderful place. And like a lot of their heritage is wrapped in. We can take that speedboat from Portland, Maine and get right there. I was just looking at that the other day. It's near Bangor. (laughs) <laughs> Look, I just let me put a bow on this discussion about the things that weren't in Mommy, Dead, and Dearest. You know, our arguments about, well, should the fathers have known and how did the doctors do it? The thing that I'm taking away is there were holes in the narrative telling of the documentary. And if they knew about all these other things, these, these filled the holes and answered a lot of very simple questions right. that would have enhanced the story. Well, I want to talk about one more thing in the news this week around a true crime, just because I think it brings up some bigger themes. I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of time on it. So this week, Tiger Woods, the undisputed, except by a few people who were like 
Arnold Palmer holdover and Jack Nicholas holdovers, the undisputed greatest golfer of all time, mm-hmm. who has had a couple of downfalls in his career, was arrested on a charge of driving under the influence earlier this week near his home in Florida. It was initially a DUI type arrest, but he blew a zero and it's become clear that it is a painkillers related arrest. He says it's prescribed medication gone wrong. As you all know, if you've ever listened to this podcast, I tend to lean toward probably uh, has an opioids problem only because it is so prevalent now. And it's just such part of our narrative. And uh, it just makes me incredibly sad. Um, And I just tend to lean toward that. And I always end up being uh, right, as with Prince. (laughs) And as with all of the other uh, situations where, and, you know, it's like, oh, yes, it turns out. You heard it here first. Rebecca is usually always right. About the opioids thing. Did you say usually? No, I guess always right. What do you have to say about that, Kevin? (laughs) I'm often right. No, I'm often right about the opioids thing. Because the newsroom that I work in, we do a lot of reporting on it. And these stories have a lot in common. That's not what I want to talk about. Okay. I want to talk about this thing around Tiger Woods and the day after his arrest and in the in the days following there has been this proliferation of memes, funny memes about, you know, Tiger Woods his mugshot? using his mugshot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it kind of got me thinking like we really, as a culture, love ourselves a fallen hero. Why do people love that so much, you think? Yeah, you're right. It's like fallen heroes or like lifestyles of the rich and famous that had something like this where where they fall from grace. And, you know, I think it's just that sort of the person that has always been held up as the golden boy to find out that maybe, you know, there's some cracks in the veneer and maybe things aren't quite as perfect as you think. And they're a little bit more like us. And I think that people just sort of latch on to any salacious detail that comes out in a case like this just because... I don't know. It's it's like it's like a feeding frenzy. It's like, you know, a pack of wolves sometimes when something like this happens and people just can't get enough of something bad happening to somebody when in reality, like you said, it's it's pretty sad. And, you know, we're all human and everybody makes mistakes. But when you are held up on such a pedestal, the reaction from the public, I think, is just so much different. Yeah. You know, there's the part about like the modern press that it bleeds, it leads, it, it, you know, it's sort of reflexive that celebrity scandal is kind of the thing they just run towards. But beyond that, it's all part of, you know, Western civilization narrative. It goes back to Greek tragedy. I mean, that the hero, you know, must fall because of his hubris. That makes for, you know, the classic narrative. And so it's one of the reasons why a story like Tiger Woods or O.J. Simpson or number Aaron Hernandez. Aaron, Aaron Hernandez. Ray Rice. Ray Rice. I mean, not all of those. Tom Brady. Not all of those people are like. Tom Brady, yes or no? Tom Brady, right. It's a, Yes, it's another reason why people, Peyton Manning, A-Rod, you know, people just salivate over the idea that you got up to the top of the ziggurat and now you're falling down. But it goes back centuries as, as part of a storytelling narrative that that makes for a good tale. Now, I'm going to actually add a layer to this and come to you, Toby, for this because... And screw you for saying Tom Brady three times. Well, Kevin, you sort of had to reach for that. I had to, had to say it three times and you had to reach for the Peyton Manning and you had to reach for the... I think that there was an issue with a lot of people with Tiger Woods being at the top to begin with. Tiger Woods is a black man in a white sport. And when I see the glee that sort of surrounds yet another Tiger Woods downfall story, I can't help 
but look at it as also as a story about race and about the black experience and about what it's like to be Tiger Woods versus what it's like to be, say, I don't know, John Daly, who had, it was also a great golfer, who had serious personal problems That's with a fat addiction one and, 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 and lost millions of dollars gambling and was a great golfer at his peak. Not the tiger, uh, not Tiger Woods level, yeah. but like nobody ever uh, confused him had, for Tiger. He Woods. had potential. I think he was more of a character than a consistently good golfer. What do you think, Toby? I hear where you're coming from. I I don't necessarily agree. It's hard to generalize. I think about Tiger just because he is such an outlier in yeah. golf. Like he's he's by far the biggest star that golf has ever had. Even Arnold Palmer, back in the day, there there just wasn't the media coverage. There wasn't as much golf on television. At his height, he may have been the best known athlete in America. In some ways, I think it's similar to OJ in that he's not just another athlete. He's Mm -hmm. like a titan. And so his fall, I think, seems it's like the bigger they come, the harder they fall. It, it, It seems a little more impactful. At the same time, I mean, I think people just like Johnny Manziel, I think is for people who follow Johnny football. You know, football. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was a guy who was sort of a you know a legend at Texas A and M, but he was a big partier and people knew it. And he totally flamed out when he went to the pros. And you know, there's plenty of shots of him drunk and doing stupid things, and and people gleeful about that. So Who I don't was know. Gleeful about that? Like I don't even know about that. Again, it's the amount to which that glee was was public and noticeable to everybody is in, I think, proportion to how many people knew Johnny Manziel versus Mm. Tiger Woods. Yeah. You know, Tiger Woods, I mean, he's just it's like, I guess Mike Tyson is another guy who is kind of like that. Everybody knew who Mike Tyson was when he fell. Everybody knew. But there's a difference. Your point is taken, Rebecca, about. Benign racism. No, it's not benign. Okay, about racism. I just think, I think Toby's saying, and I agree with him, Tiger Woods is not the best example because he is so above everybody else in that sport. This is why he is the best example. Mm -hmm. Mike Tyson and Tiger Woods have one thing that they do not have in common, which is that boxing had black heroes before Mike Tyson, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tiger Woods, every single time he would step onto a golf course, would have racial epithets thrown his way from the gallery and golf courses at major tournaments at minor tournaments his entire career same with the williams sisters it still persists today and i feel like the glee and the memes especially with a mugshot to me feel different and i experience them differently when it is with a fallen athlete of color i really feel that way i don't know for me it really hits home laura uh, I don't know if you know anything about golf or anything. Yeah, about- I know nothing about sports. That's why I've been uh, somewhat silent here. I have no <laughs> idea who any of the people are besides Mike Tyson. I know who he is because, uh, yeah. Do you, though, like, I mean, let's take the race and the crime story aside. When you see a story of somebody who pulled over, sleeping at the wheel, literally blows a 0.0 and talks about prescribed medication, do you not feel incredibly sad immediately given what's happening like with opioids in our country right now 
Yeah, since I walked around for two weeks and everyone thought I had an opioid problem um, after my vacation. <laughs> but <your> painkillers? <laughs> my painkillers. That's the name um, of a drink, that, people. It is, it is. Well, I, it do, Rebecca, because I just feel, you know, right now it's everywhere you look. And, and now I'm like one of those, you know, anytime I see someone that's like, you know, a little bit off, I'm like, oh, I wonder if they've got an opioid problem. I wonder what's going on because it's just... You hear so many stories of people that start with an injury with painkillers and the next thing you know, you know, they're heroin addicts. So it it is sad. And it's sad to see somebody like Tiger Woods, who's had a lot of injuries in recent years. Like, didn't he just have like a back surgery or something? Countless back surgeries. He's 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 like the bionic man right now. He's been healthy for like a decade. Yeah. It's understandable that he's taking a lot of pain medicines. But, you know, somebody, his physician, maybe hire a chauffeur. I I don't know. (laughs) All right, so Kevin. A-listers, yeah. When question we see for you. Fall, sure. You are the expert on story arc on this show. Mm-hmm. Can Tiger turn his personal story around after the sex stuff, yeah. after this stuff? Can he turn the story around? Absolutely he can. I mean, all he has to, well, all he has to do. I mean, there's quite a bit that he needs to do public relations-wise, and it would be great if he could get back on the golf course and be the Tiger of old because a lot of those He's a lot 41. Of, a lot of those transgressions could would happen. be forgiven. It, yep. Yeah, it could definitely happen. But it'll always be sort of a mystery of the what could have been because he was so great in the first half of his career, the mystery of what the second half of his career could have been. Just like the great European mysteries, dramas and comedies that you could see at MHZ Choice right now. You're welcome. I totally teach you up for that one. Stream <laughs> right to your computer or TV. Remember, we talked about MHZ Choice. They are the service that brings you all of the cutting edge crime and comedy shows from Europe. Yep. And this is the place where all of the next stuff is coming uh, that you will see on American TV, those adaptations. See them now in their original language with English subtitles. Shows like The Face of Crime, The Godless, and Almost Perfect Crimes. And they have plenty of TV adaptations of some of the world's best crime fiction writers, including Andrea Kamare, uh, Henning Mankell, and Agatha Christie. New content is added every week, so you'll have something new to watch. The thing that I have been binging on, you ready for this? Homicide oh. Unit Istanbul. <laughs> it's a German show. Really? Yeah. It's really great. It's, it's German show takes place in Turkey? Takes place in Turkey, right? And the lead character is Inspector Ozakin. And he's like a real tough, you know, by the book cop, got some really tough mysteries. And then he's also got to like fight against like the the lazy bureaucracy that is in Istanbul. And the thing I love is his partner, Mustafa, has this really overbearing mother mm-hmm. and, you know, like this Oedipal complex. They're a really great pair. So it's, it's a good one to, to binge on. It's called Homicide Unit Istanbul. But there are over 2,500 hours of binge-worthy TV, and it's only $7.99 a month. So try M. MHZ Choice free for 30 days, and then after that, you'll save 50% off your first month. Visit MHZChoice.com slash writers and use code writers at checkout. That's MHZChoice.com slash writers. Writers, and use promo code writers. Absolutely. Anything else, Kevin? Yes, when I'm looking for a tampon that is a <laughs> 100% cotton. Do it. And BPA-free plastic applicators. What do you do, Kevin? I go to Lola. Good for you. Lola makes my month a little bit easier. Their subscriptions are fully customizable, so you can choose your own mix of light, regular, and supers. Your number of boxes and the frequency of deliveries, because... 
You know your body best. You do. Rebecca, do you want to take it from here? No, no, keep going. You keep going. You're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. Something tells me we're going to have to pay some of this money back. (laughs) (laughs) So for Lola, look, their subscriptions are super flexible, so you can change, skip, or cancel anytime. And they'll email you in two days before your box is shipped, so no surprises or gimmicks. It's, It's founded by women for women because, look, all those major commercial brands of tampons use a mix of synthetic ingredients, including rayon and polyester. You don't want to put that in your body, do you, Kevin? I don't even want to wear that, like in a jacket. <laughs> are you kidding me? And and plus, a lot of those tampons are, are treated with very harsh chemicals and cleansing agents and fragrances. And, and you know, why, why get involved in any of that? Why would you want to get involved in that? So, Rebecca, tell us, what do you feel about Lola tampons? I love the fact that it comes in a beautiful little package right to your house, that it's there when you need it. Everything you need is there. It's free of the chemicals, all the stuff you don't want to put in your body. They have tons of choices of what you can buy. And I don't have to send my hapless tampon ad reading husband to the store to ask him to get something for me. Then he will totally pick the wrong one. Lola solves that. I come back like Jack with the magic beans. Like, what? Yeah, yeah. Not good. (laughs) Not good. So uh, for 60% off your first order, 60%, that's yeah. a lot. Visit mylola.com and enter crime when you subscribe. That's M-Y-L-O-L-A.com. Promo code crime. crime. I hear someone writing in the background. Clearly they're writing down that web address. Is that Toby back there? He doesn't want to put it's those a, harsh chemicals in his body. It's me. I always write down what our little promo cards are as we're going along in the event that I want to order something. <laughs> well, there are a lot of people who listen who do. They do. They do. We actually have some listeners who are just like amazing about following up. Like if they use our promo code and they're worried that they like write to the company. Somebody yes, somebody tweeted that the promo code didn't work or something like that. And the that company and... responds. Yes. Listen, guys, if you want to or don't want to order something from one of our sponsors, like send them an email and tell them you heard about us on this podcast. It's awesome when we get those emails. Yeah, but you don't fuck with the listeners of Crime Writers On because they will come after you, you don't and honor- say, I want my 50% off. You don't, you don't honor their promo code? They will become the keepers. They will keepers that, yes. The promo code. It'll be 50 years from now. They'll still be doing research at the archives on where you live. They'll be confronting people on camera. One of them will. The other won't be too shy. Speaking of, this week we are talking about the keepers. This is the latest foray into true crime storytelling from Netflix. The Keepers is a seven-part documentary. It begins as a murder mystery. In 1969, Sister Kathy Sesnick, a beloved teacher slash nun, who had worked at Archbishop Keogh, a competitive Catholic girls' high school in Baltimore, she vanished without a trace when she went out one evening to buy her sister an engagement gift, and she never returned home to the apartment that she shared with another nun. Her car was found late that night, parked a few blocks away from her home at an odd angle, leading investigators to suspect that her killer was someone she knew. On January 3rd, 1970, her decomposing body was found lying in a field near a dump in a nearby suburb. The case went cold quickly. Sister Kathy's murder remains unsolved. Now, the documentary, The Keepers, it focuses on the possible connection between the murder and Keo Chaplin, Father Joseph Maskell, who's been accused of sexually abusing students, and to placate Toby Ball. I'm going to say to our listeners... Trigger warning, because we're talking about some, like, sex abuse stuff. So let's just begin where The Keepers begins, with The Keepers. And Laura Bricker, in the first, I don't know, 
10 minutes of this documentary, <laughs> I think I immediately sent you either a tweet or an email saying, oh my God, Laura Bricker, you're in a documentary on Netflix. There are these two women, Gemma Hoskins and Abby Shaw. We'll just call them Gemma and Abby. These are two Archbishop Keogh alumna. Uh, they've been haunted by the death of their beloved, free-spirited teacher, Sister Kathy, They've basically been Nancy drooling around the case of her murder for several years. They started a Facebook page to help crowdsource the information. Hoskins, the fiery redhead, is the people person who loves confronting people. That's, that's Laura Bricker. <laughs> and then Schaub is uh, the data-driven one. She likes doing research, filing FOIA requests. Uh, Laura Bricker, why don't you just like tell us what you think of these two women? I love them. Um, and I, I have to say, I started laughing. I was like five minutes in and I was like, ooh, because you guys had said you're in this this show. <laughs> and Gemma sits down. She's at a bar meeting someone and she's like, what kind of Chardonnay do you have? <laughs> oh, OK, that's OK. I drink that one at home. And I'm like, oh, Yellow God, tail. OK. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, so the Chardonnay drinking. Yes, that was me. But you know what? I, I just love these two women because you know what? They have no experience or no background as investigators. And they are doing a pretty damn good job, to put it mildly. And, you know, it's just amazing what they accomplished. And I was so impressed by their persistence, by Abby's ability to learn to navigate the freedom of information requests and to keep going, you know, when the FBI wasn't responding and she had her little spreadsheet that was documenting it. And and then Gemma, who was just really savvy about going out and talking to people and had a little, you know, plan in her head of what she was thinking about people, but you never would know when she was out there um, because she was so chatty and friendly. So I just, I was amazed by these women at what they were able to get done. But it also made me mad that these two women were the ones that had to do this when somebody else really should have been getting off their butts and doing something about this case. I kind of thought the documentary when we first started was going to be about these two women, the fact that they were the ones investigating the case. These two women were actually, it was their material that sort of guided the documentary. They were the investigators on whom the documentarian and the director, Ryan White, was like, he was relying on their stuff. Yeah, well, I think also to some extent these other journalists that we saw, but those guys were not active. You know, they were not like characters that you would follow and you'd, you'd see stuff. You mean the guy with the hoarder <laughs> stuff in his attic? Yeah, I go up in the, the attic. The guy in the attic? I wrote this article <laughs> in 1993. Yeah, I mean, they had, they had interesting things to bring. Sure. Um, Swords. But, and- but yeah, but it ended up being, I mean, that's why I think it's it's called The Keepers because in a way it's their story. We're following them in their search through paperwork and re-interviews and memories and are they false memories or are they well, you know it's their journey to get to the truth i kind of wish we followed them more frankly which we'll talk about okay toby this documentary takes a quick turn after starting in this place with these two women trying to solve the murder of their beloved teacher into this very, very complicated and dark story of abuse. What do you think of the fact that this documentary sort of starts out as an investigation and then turns into this deep dive? That's a good question. I think it was a tough, when they were trying to structure this, I think it was probably pretty tough because you have two stories that are related but not the same. And they're very, very different stories. You know, so you have this the story of the two women doing the investigating 
And then you have the story of a contemporary of theirs who has just remembered this just incredible abuse that she suffered at the hands of Maskell. The way they do it, it's not very graceful, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know how... It's a tough one because I think in some ways you really had to devote a significant uninterrupted chunk of time to that woman Jean's story about what happened to her. Right. I think because like your instinct would be to kind of cut back and forth between the two stories more. But I I don't think you could dilute that in a way that was responsible. No, I I actually agree with you. I, you know, tipping my hand a little bit. I had a really hard time with how this documentary was structured. I think the story was amazing. Kevin, I remember you read this as a true crime story like mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it was in the Huff Post. T- tell me about your reactions just before anything around this documentary. When you saw this documentary was coming out, you said to me, oh my God, this is like one of the best true crime stories I yeah. ever heard about. Yeah, I tweeted that at the time. This was What did you think and know about this before you saw this documentary? That uh, Well, I knew that there was the murder of a nun, and the implication was the main suspect was a priest who was also serially abusing kids at this high school and, for lack of a better term, pimping these girls out to other men. Maybe cops. Maybe cops, and that his brother was a cop, and they were running cover and all this other stuff. So, like, the bones of it are like, wow, that's something. And when we watched the first episode, you were asking questions like, just wait, just wait. No, 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 don't, don't ask, just don't wait, wait, wait. It'll pay off. And when we get to the end of the first episode and watch the second one, you're like, oh, yeah. And we get introduced into all of that. And then I'm going to tip my hand. I think after the third episode or so, it just lost its way. Right. And ended up being a profile of all the different personalities involved and less about where the case was going. It, it, it showed a lot of suspects and a lot of, it could have been this, and it could have been that, and it could have been this, and, and it could have been that. And sideways turns into more abuse stories, which, by the way, yes. were completely... And I, I agree with Toby that, like, it's their story's worth telling. Mm-hmm. And, like, the story of this woman, by the way, Jane Doe slash Jean is like mm-hmm. one of the most incredible yeah. people on film like I've ever seen. She is so compelling and believable. And there's controversy around recovered memories. Mm-hmm. If you want to have like a standard bearer for like somebody with recovered memories who's acknowledging what she still doesn't know and what she does know, Jean is your gal, right? Like she's unbelievable. And her story is so compelling and even the stuff between like she's talking about her and her husband and how like Mm -hmm. he's I kind of feel like it was a separate I feel like the murder was the hook Laura what do you think about like the many many things they were trying to accomplish here as I was watching this now you all know I've been on my Anne Cleves kick so as I was watching this I was like "Ooh, this is like an Anne Cleves novel and there's like another layer and another layer and you keep thinking you know what's happening and then something else so I was like waiting for all of this to like tie together at the end in some nice neat package like that this was all going to somehow connect so yeah it it did get a little bit disjointed because it didn't all connect at the end and I left thinking like but I think you had to tell the story this way because these two stories are so interwoven it was just a question of the amount of airtime that was given to one part of the story versus another and I think it was just because that one part of the story was so much more compelling 
as Jane Doe was telling her piece. But I, I definitely wanted, you know, as I was going forward, I mean, we finally did get the police at one point. And, at one um, point, right? Not like yeah. and, then, <laughs> and And then, like, yeah. the big confrontation there was, like, a, a letter that was misplaced, and he was like, oh, let me go check on that. So I was kind of hoping for a little bit more about the investigation. I don't know. Overall, this whole thing just made me so angry. As is a total aside, I'm sure we're going to get to this at the Catholic Church. I just, I can't even take it. (laughs) Right. No, I don't disagree. I mean, part of the, I think, the narrative weakness here, it feels like this documentary is put together by somebody who doesn't think the audience will believe that people in the Catholic Church are capable of this kind of abuse and the Catholic Church is capable of this kind of cover-up. I feel like as part of the American public and somebody who's seen Spotlight and been alive for the last 25 mm-hmm. years and read the newspaper, we believe it. Like, we know this happened. We know it. We've seen it. We've heard the story. We know the abuse happened. I feel like the documentary missed an opportunity to take that at face value, tell us that story, and and let us just believe it, and then run with the murder cover-up stuff more. I feel like they leaned heavily on the abuse to try to convince us of the murder cover-up stuff without providing us a lot of meat on the bones of the murder cover-up stuff. Proving that if they would cover up sex abuse, they would cover up a murder. Or the ties between the sex... uh, Uh, Toby, what were you going to say? I thought it was an important part of the show in that I I think there's a lot of times when you hear sex abuse in the Catholic church, pre-sex abuse, and you kind of have this mental image of what it is. But I think having it laid out one girl's, the totality as far as she can remember of her experience and what that was. And it's not a one-off. It's not a two-off. It's not a little you know, inappropriate touching and stuff. I mean, it's full on repeated rape Mm -hmm. and using his authority to shame her, to make excuses for what he was doing. And this is just one. And then you, you, you think about the breadth of the scandal, you know, worldwide. That for me was kind of powerful in that it, it kind of forced you to take a look at like, no, this is what it really is. It's serial rape. Right. And and sex trafficking. Sex tra- right. Yeah, that's actually the cool. cool. And, yeah, and, yeah. But by the way, can I just interrupt you for one second, Toby? I just want to yep. acknowledge for our listeners, um, it's raining hard where we live. I know that Laura's on a porch. <laughs> We're in a closet in our basement, so like it's not as busy. So our listeners are hearing some background noise. It's the it's storm rain. of the century. It's happening yeah, right now. There's thunder and lightning. All right. Um, yeah. So I guess the other two things were, and I, and I almost wrote you about the sort of repressed memory stuff, that I think it's a little bit different in this case in that, you know, a lot of the sort of satanic panic stuff was, uh, you know, therapists who had kind of bought into this stuff. Exactly. Kind of drawing it out of out of people, sometimes with hypnosis and sometimes just with, you know, constantly questioning and, and planning answers in often young people so that this was a a lot different. And I think what it was, was sort of what the whole trigger warning thing is at its extreme, which is that she was in a situation where she was talking about sex abuse in a different context and it just hit her, Mm -hmm. right? They were talking about her uncle who was abusive and she had to walk out and that began the thing. So, I mean, I think that was kind of the classic triggering moment and, 
sort of the way that works. Now, see, Toby, I'll just tell you, this documentary in some ways for me tried to pack so much in and then also packed too much in, like it felt unbalanced because that for me, the controversy around recovered memories is very freaking interesting. Like they showed that footage from the 90s of her, Jane Doe and Jane Roe coming out making these accusations, Mm -hmm. having these trials, and then the prosecution or the defense using all of the recovered memory BS, Sally, Jesse, Raphael stuff to counter their claims. That could have been the subject of a whole documentary of like, no, this definitely happened and Mm -hmm. here's how we know. And the culture around all the satanic BS stuff really hurt these, these women's case in their prosecution of this guy who clearly was, like, raping a lot of people. It was horrible. That was a whole other story that was almost like a side note in this documentary. So this thing starts with, like, a murder mystery, and then we have the sex abuse stuff, and then we have the trial stuff. And that, and to me, that was, like, very, very, very interesting. And it was a missed opportunity that could have been a whole episode, but it was, like, sandwiched into 15 minutes of, of one episode. Well, I think it's one of those, I mean, it's like when you read a, a nonfiction book and somebody's done, or even fiction, like historical fiction, and somebody's done just an insane amount of research and they just want to throw stuff in mm. there so that you know they know it. And it, it kind of felt at times that it was that this was like that and it was just like, okay, we're just going to throw this in. And to a certain extent, it's like, yeah, you probably could have made a 20-hour thing about this if you'd explored... I mean, there's a lot of different kind of interesting things that they didn't get to. Like right. they kind of touched on. You mean the like what actually between... happened to Sister Kathy? They didn't actually get to that. Well, I but think it, it, I think it would have. I, I think they too they long. hinted at it. They kind of hinted at things like how the Baltimore police is, is sort it. of in it's bed with the Catholic episodes. Church. They hinted at it. Like we got this deep dive and all that. They hinted at what actually. I don't know. I found that frustrating. I mean, one of the things that was interesting was you. You look at the the characters, right? The sister Russell, who's like the roommate. Yeah. You have the you know the teachers who knew her. You have her boyfriend. I'm gonna call him her boyfriend because he was Jerry Coob. Uh-huh. Who was a priest uh-huh. when she was? They were both young. They were clearly yeah, had a they relationship. Had, they had sex, didn't they? Yeah, I think. they had a real relationship yeah, based on her letter there. Yeah, her typewritten letter, which didn't come out to what episode six? Seven. Seven. I think it was. And then, it, and then it would just kind of <laughs> was just left there. I, I don't know. Yeah, Laura, what do you uh, think? You know, I li- I liked it more than you guys did. I think because I I was I think I watched it in a shorter period of time. I was kind of binging it, trying to finish it up over the weekend. The thing that I liked, though, was like every time something would happen and they would come up with some new suspect or some new lead. And I was thinking, oh, they're never going to find this person. Poof, there was this person. <laughs> like Edgar. So it was like, you know, oh, my God, the guy, was he the guy with all the stuffed animals? Yeah. I was just I was really kind of traumatized by that part. Yeah, um, a whole other problem. I, 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 I don't even know what was going on there. I, I just felt sad for everybody. The note that I got from Toby about that was, quote, I had some reservations about the way they interviewed the geezer. <laughs> Maybe one of the best uh, sentences Toby's I mean, ever the gold miner? <laughs> Well, he he just didn't even seem to be with it enough to even do an interview, really. So so for me, I liked the fact that every time there was a question and you wanted to know what happened, they went directly to the person that could answer that question. Questions as I'm watching it and I'm wanting to know next, like if I was actually out there investigating this, what would I ask? Who would I go to? 
that's what they were doing. But I was re- what I was really hoping is that once we got through all these layers of all these people, because it seemed like each episode they would get a little bit closer. And I was like, okay, something's going to happen. And like, I was really, really hoping that this was all going to tie up at the end and that we were going to find out what happened. Because people, I was amazed at some of these people that were actually admitting to their role in things so openly. I mean, weren't you guys, like some of the people that were like, well, it's about time you called. And then they just like unload the secret they'd been holding for 50 years. I was like, whoa, I was was amazed by some of that part of the story. I'm thinking along the same lines as, as Toby, as that there was an awful lot that was gathered and maybe didn't need to be in here and didn't need to go seven episodes. I I remember hearing um, author Anita Diamant, who wrote The Red Tent, I remember hearing her speak, Mm -hmm. and she warned against falling in love with your research. And as a nonfiction writer, I I can say that there's a lot of times I've done that and and have committed that sin where- uh, You and me both, son. You know, where have listed- I commit that on this damn podcast. (laughs) Did you hear the whole Tiger Woods part earlier? Hey, I found out, you know, (laughs) that the governor of New Hampshire had lunch at the White House and I was able to find the menu. And I like listed (laughs) what kind of wine was there and the kind of dessert. And I probably didn't need to do that. And so I, I think that they got- so much that really wasn't going anywhere and just was sort of, it was, I I don't even know if it was tantalizing, but it was kind of frustrating that they would come up with these suspects and sort of, it was like running in place. I have basic structural problems along those same lines. Mm -hmm. So you have, for instance, Gene, who tells in an early episode, episode maybe two, we introduced, we're introduced to her in episode two. And we hear rather early in the series that one of the things Father Maskell does to scare her is takes her to see the body of Sister Kathy right. lying in the stump and that she then, she remembers it clearly now with this recovered memory and like taking maggots off her face. Uh-huh. We then get maybe some answer about the maggots, what, like four hours later in the documentary? Either the sixth or the seventh episode. It is, there's basic ordering of when you would do stuff that would make you think, okay, this is important. Let's signpost it, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So we, have to, we get the whole story about the maggots. It just is a wayside. Two episodes later, it's like, oh, she had to have been lying because maggots don't live in the winter. And then four episodes later, it's like, bring in the evil guy from the Jean Benet documentary, <laughs> <laughs> which is the thing we'll talk about in a second. I feel like it's very much about structure. I think the structure, as I was watching it, is this is like if you were doing the investigation, if you were an investigator and you were investigating this case, you're going to hit a lot of dead ends. It's basically giving you all the information that you would have if you were investigating this case. And you think, oh, when you're in the middle of a case, oh, this is going to be something great. And then you get out and you find the person and you interview them and you're like, another dead end. I mean, that's happened to me so many times. So that's how I I thought it was just structured more like you were going along as they were investigating it instead of an actual narrative story. So can we talk about quickly like some of the things that they actually looked at in this documentary? I think they're interesting. Mm -hmm. We talked about the geezer, that one of the suspects that sort of came up was Edgar. (laughs) Right. And what was his relation to Sister Kathy and the crime? There are two things. One is that he was the suspect who was 
supposedly cruising around the middle school looking for girls. Right. In his stolen convertible. An MG. And then he also showed up the night of Sister Kathy's murder with blood all over him. And then when his wife asked him what the deal was, he said he was in a bar fight and then he became an alcoholic. Yes. And he also gave her for Christmas a necklace that appeared to be exactly. a, a wedding bell. may bell. or may not have yeah. been the gift May yet. or may not have been. Right. And that was one of the things that for me was a little bit of a stretch. Like nobody knows what the gift was and they were trying to make connections between <laughs> yeah. this thing in the wife's jewelry box. It's and his the, birthstone. And the maybe gift that Kathy could have been buying her sister, which by the way, could have also been a toaster, correct? I don't know. I was more into the snowman mug at that point. <laughs> but yeah. he also he also called up that radio show in the 70s. Yeah. With that information. That's true. So so that that was the other connection. Well, let's talk about another suspect which I was sort of shocked was really a suspect, uh Jerry Coob. Another another a well, priest? Somebody in his cir- in her circle that felt mm-hmm. very strongly about her, had Kathy's strong feelings about her. Let's face it, he was her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And in any homicide, you would naturally look at the love interest. Laura, Jerry Coob was not only cooperative to authorities, but also incredibly cooperative to these documentarians. What were your thoughts about him? Yeah. I have to say, in the beginning, I thought, what a nice guy. And then at the end, I was still thinking, what a nice guy. But I have to say, you know, once it came out that he was a suspect and they were so on, the police really were all over him. You know, I did start to wonder about him because, you know, they clearly were a couple. He wanted to get married. She said no. You know, that's one of those cases where you could hear somebody just freaking out and losing it and you know and certainly I didn't get that feeling from watching him but I did start to wonder if there was more going on um but he was so quiet you know he definitely was very upfront about it but people can Mm -hmm. be that way when they're trying to throw you off Toby what do you think of Jerry Coop you know he he's definitely an interesting character and I think it's one of those things where uh, you know you wonder how much what you saw of him was decisions made by the filmmakers about what they showed because he definitely comes off as being sort of a gentle, thoughtful person. And it's just hard to imagine him killing anybody. That being said, you know, the fact that <laughs> despite this sort of demeanor that you see, that people are so intensely suspicious of him, particularly the police. And then there's that sort of confusion about where he was when he found out and what he'd been doing. He was going to see Easy Rider with his friend. He went to see, which, (laughs) you know, who can blame him? But then there was like... Two priests walk into Oh my God, that is such such like a late 60s, early 70s thing. It is. I've I've seriously seen that movie probably about 20 times. So I I thought he was a complicated figure. It's a little hard to know what to make of him because you're you're obviously watching an edited version of him. But I, I was, came away sympathetic but wondering if that was a product of what was shown to us. Here's the thing. Not only was Jerry Coob in the film, like answering any questions they want, his wife was in the film answering any questions they want. It For me, it's just like, it was tough for me to like draw a line between Jerry Coob and this murder. I mean, I think it's clear they were having a relationship. And by the way, for people who don't want to think that nuns and priests sometimes get together, it happens all the time. I personally know in my life four couples who used to be a nun and a priest who are now married couples and have been married for a long time. And it happened in the like 60s and mm-hmm. 70s. Right. Like 
it was an exceedingly common thing because, as we saw in the documentary, the Catholic Church at that time was experimenting with, I'm going to let you do this experiment where you're teaching in a public school and you live in an apartment with another nun and you wear civilian clothes every day. It was and you after get to, Vatican too, right. And there you was, get to live right. your life as a regular. Like, there was a lot of that. My former in-laws, my ex-father-in-law was a priest, like full-on real-life priest. This is extremely common. Well, so good for your kids that he, he decided to leave. Listen, I'm just saying that, like, <laughs> I'm just saying that, like, I'm not scandalized by mm-hmm. the fact that he had a relationship with Sister Kathy. Yeah, I feel like maybe he doesn't want to talk about it openly because that's weird. Maybe he that comes off weird. But can we talk for a second about Werner Spitz, please. The, the pathologist. <laughs> the, the creepy old, yes. Do we have to? He's come up on our show before. Uh-huh. Werner Spitz makes a cameo in this documentary. He is the uh, documentarian's forensic expert of choice. Well, he was actually the medical examiner on the actual homicide. Was he? Yeah. 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 That's, That's why, why he yeah. had all the photos and okay. everything. But yeah. They the... couldn't get the autopsy from the state because okay. it was an open case. But can we just talk about the fact that in the first 90 seconds of him being on screen, <laughs> he brings his secretary into the shot to run down his credentials because he, he wants us all famous. to know, explain why I'm famous. And then she goes through... O.J., John Benet, Michael Peterson, a.k.a. the staircase guy. Uh, and I find that so unbelievably obnoxious. And also, of course, I know that he's being sued by Burke Ramsey for gajillions of dollars for basically accusing him of murder on a CBS thing. Yeah. I have issues with this guy. And I don't want to say the maggot thing isn't right, because I'm sure he has a lot of expertise, but... <laughs> Am I alone that Werner Spitz is tainted? Am I the only one who thinks that on this podcast? I don't think that. Laura, do you think Werner Spitz is tainted or is it just me? You know, he's been doing this for a long time. And I thought it was really interesting that he was actually the medical examiner when this kid, you know, he actually went to the scene when Sister Kathy's body was found. So I thought that part was interesting. But I, I thought that might have been his wife who he was uh, ordering around there in the beginning. But it was his, I wasn't really sure who she was. Um, he lives with Casey Anthony, I thought. Oh. <laughs> um, but it was pretty obnoxious. I was like, you know, uh, at, at some point when you've been doing it as that job, as long as he has been doing it. Don't you kind of get over the need to prove yourself and tell everybody who you are? Exactly. Yeah, that's why you have your secretary do it. That's what the titles on the screen are for. It's like Werner Spitz. Yeah. Like, it's kind of an interesting thing to show. Yes. Don't you think that was a weird choice as documentarians? Well, well think- maybe. It's like if the guy who was the lead investigator on the Sister Kathy Sesdick murder ended up becoming head of the FBI or the medical examiner in that case from 1969, ends up being one of the premier forensic pathologists Wait, in that, the world. that unsolved case that nobody knows what the hell happened? No. But when he says, yes, there were maggots in her throat, then it lends a lot of credence to that assertion. I think they could have just introduced it a little bit differently than <laughs> having him order his admin to like <laughs> recite them in front of the camera. And then they decided, like, this is awesome. We'll keep this in, which I just kind of took as like... Like a little bit of a backhand. To yeah, him, it's like, like it's like here's this expert who's also a huge douchebag, right? Exactly. We need to get some still shots of like MLK, and let's get some uh, B-roll of all these people he's mentioning. <laughs> so, so I feel like this has sort of been an all over the place conversation, but I want to ask you guys, you know, before we wrap it up and give our sort of review of it, 
Do you think the documentary tried to tell a story of what happened to Sister Kathy? And I'd love to go around the horn. What do you think that story was that happened to Sister Kathy? Kevin, I'm going to start with you. I don't think it was Father Maskell. Okay. I think it could have been one of the other suspects. I don't know if it was related to the other. Was it Janice? What's her The, the other person who was killed later in that weekend. Talk about that other red herring that's sort of thrown out and never followed up on, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. And how Do you think their lives, Sister but... Kathy's murder was related to her uh, trying to uncover this abuse story? Yes or no? No. Uh, Laura, what do you think? Theory of the crime with what you know from the documentary, and I'm sure you've done other internet research because you're basically the Gemma of this podcast. I haven't done too much research. I don't know. I mean, I think the story that we are supposed to think is that Sister Kathy was murdered because she went to report what happened after Jane Doe confided in her what was going on, and she said, I'll take care of it. And then poof, she's reassigned, and then poof, she's missing, poof, she's dead. Connect the dots. And that seems like a logical explanation. But, you know, I just feel like if that was the way that we were going, we needed to have something more to tie Father Maskell to what seemed like the most likely scenario, which was the one about the little boy who was along for the ride when his uncle and the other guy supposedly rolled the body up in a rug and dumped it in the woods. I I don't feel like there was enough of a connection drawn between those people and the church or it, it just... There needed to be some more dots connected for me to believe that. So at this point, it seems like it's probably unrelated. Toby, what do you think? Do you have a theory of the crime or do you think that this documentary posed a theory of the crime? And can you articulate it if so? I don't know if they put forth like exactly why it happened. I mean, it seems like the night before she was murdered, that there was this visit from these other priests and it probably had to do with her either talking to somebody about Maskell or saying she was about to or something. And that the next day, possibly by accident, although they show the hole in her skull, it, somebody hit her hard. And that it was probably somebody who had something to do with the church. I, I mean, I think the police probably think it's Coob. It, it could very likely be somebody we never saw. But then once that happened, they got these two other guys, Billy and Edgar, to help them dispose of the body. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think that was kind of what I thought they were trying to hint at was that these other two guys, because I think they also said like they didn't, I think they hinted that they didn't kill anybody, but they buried her or, or placed her somewhere. Now, Do they ever say whether she was sexually assaulted? Did no, I miss that detail? No, they didn't. They never did. No, her shirt was pulled down. It's an important detail. Kevin, I have a question was, yeah. for you. Yeah. What has always been your number one biggest question about the Adnan Syed case in Serial Season 1? It would have to be, how did Jay know where the car was? Right. For me, the how did Jay know where the car was question in this documentary that was never fully fleshed out was Father Maskell taking Jane Doe to see the body. How would Father Maskell know where the body was? No, how would Jane Doe know where the body was? No, how would Father Maskell know where the body was? You'd have to believe was? that Jane Doe exactly. knew where, where so she we, was going. Are we not, like, we're completely drawn down this path where we are, as documentary watchers, like, drawn into believing her because her story is corroborated by two other people who go on camera and say the same thing happened to them. Yeah. We have Jane Rowe the abuse, and then yeah. a third woman whose name, I'm sorry, I can't remember right now. And then we have all these other, you know, reported things that happen with the the man who miraculously shows up in episode seven. 
So she has corroborating evidence that she was abused. So we right, believe yeah. I don't she think was anyone dis- doesn't believe that though he so abused people. So we believe that Jane Doe was abused. Jean. Yeah, Jean, yeah. And then she tells a story about Father Maskell bringing her to see the body. Right. This is what happens when you say bad things about people. Uh-huh. Right? In her memory. Yes. How does Father Maskell know what the body is? This is the connection the documentary for me mm-hmm. fails to make. Right. That's the linchpin between the two stories. And there's this murder. If it if yeah. it happened. Yeah, that, that's what I was saying. They need to have the you need to have something to link these people to the church. There's something that's missing there. Production yeah. wise, Kevin, one of the things we see in a question you kept asking me is that, that <laughs> how poor many actress, times did that poor little girl actress have to walk into that room? Through that door. <laughs> through the door. And then we close up of the the door <laughs> latch. It was like Side note. It was like how many times? Well here's my here's my final question about the keepers. I know we've been a little bit all over the map. I hope our listeners who haven't watched it yet have gotten a taste of kind of what it's about. But my final question, Toby Ball our listeners who maybe have not yet watched The Keepers, would you give this documentary a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or a thumbs sideways? What do you think, Toby? It's a tough watch. I mean, I, I give it a thumbs up. Uh, it's not a like as enthusiastic a thumbs up as I sometimes give to things, but I thought it was good. A lot of the stuff about the, the sex abuse I thought was important, but it, it's, it's a really, really tough watch in some parts. So... With that caveat, I guess I would give it a thumbs up. What about you, Laura Bricker? I would go with thumbs up. I think that, yes, there was some things that were lacking um, in terms of connecting dots. But overall, I think that this was a really important story to be heard in terms of, you know, we've heard the spotlight story um, with the, obviously, we're close to Boston. We've heard all about the Boston clergy sex abuse cases. But this one, it just, it made me so enraged as I was watching it. You know, I'm ready to, you know, if if I'm not here next week, it's because I've gone down to go meet up with Gemma and Abby. (laughs) (laughs) and have some Chardonnay with them and just put this thing to bed and solve it because it made me so angry. So I would say thumbs up and watch it. It is a tough thing to watch, but I think it's, you know, an important story. I'm just going to say before I give my review that Gemma (laughs) is my favorite person. I love Gemma and Abby. I love them. And on that note, I'm going to give this a strong thumbs sideways slash thumbs down. You can't give a strong... I am. I'm sideways. I am. Is it strong? I am strongly non-committed I to am this. Compass. I am strenuously <laughs> not recommending or you not not recommending this. You can't strenuously not yes, not recommend. Here's why, here's why I can't. Here's why I can't. Okay. Everything this thing needed to be great is there. You have the people. Mm-hmm. You have the interviews. Mm-hmm. You have the story. Yeah, definitely. You have the witnesses. You have the incredible potential of these two women who have spent their post-retirement years seeking truth and the fascinating story of how they've done that and drawn these connections and kept this case alive. You have this incredible set of Jane Doe, Jane Roe victims who can tie the murder to the abuse. And then I feel as if a tremendous number of minutes were wasted in this documentary trying to impart things to the audience that we got the first time we heard them. I'm going to be totally transparent. Kevin, you and I watch this over like a series of what, four nights? Mm-hmm. How many of those nights did I fall asleep Every night. during the... And I don't fall asleep during <laughs> yeah. anything. Yeah. 
I can stay awake for even like the crappiest thing that we've just had. There was a lot watch. of podcasting going on at that time, so you were very that's physically true. drained. However, that's true. Yeah. I feel like the filmmakers here did a disservice to the story. I really do. Yeah. I think, but that doesn't mean it's not a story worth watching. I think it is worth watching alone for the Gemma and Abby and Jane Doe stuff because those three women. And I, I also want to say, we've never before watched or reviewed a story where all of the protagonists were middle-aged women. Booyah to the middle-aged women. I, as a middle-aged woman, I was like, these are my people. They're like- You're not. I'm pretty middle-aged. You're younger than them. I'm getting pretty close. Yeah, I- but these are like women of a certain age who are like. Toby know, knows what I'm at getting. Hey, at. listen, this is, listen. These ladies. No, no, no. Power to them. Jenna has them. a goddamn garbage can in her kitchen that is the same garbage can they have at McDonald's. That's yes, great. Now. Where did she get that? That is awesome. <laughs> For real. You're not a retiree though. That's, that's no. But yeah. these ladies were like so. Like if I could spend five minutes of my time doing half the stuff that they do, I would know I was making a difference. It's worth watching for them. Yeah. I feel like the filmmakers did a disservice to them and to the story, and for that reason, I am strenuously thumb sideways. I don't know how that could be. Their 50th high school uh, reunion is going to be awesome, though, huh? The high school's been closed. <laughs> well, they'll still get together at the Holiday Inn or someplace like God. that. By the way, but- poor Archbishop Keogh, whoever that was, like his brand has been tarnished forever. <laughs> not going to name anything after him. Like, who's, like There's going to be no like, Archbishop Keogh like, rest stop or whatever, right? Oh my God, that's Ooh. the worst place for sexual abuse. Yeah, you know? Oh my God, God damn rest it. stops are horrible. Why not just Ooh. name like a Russian steam bath after him for Christ's sake. Oh, by the way, speaking of foreign countries and references that you mess up, you need to apologize to our audience for using Czechoslovakia in a reference last week. We've gotten so many emails about it. Czechoslovakia was a legitimate country. But you know that it no longer is, right? I do know it no longer is, yes. I just want to make sure that everyone knows that you know that. Yeah, I know that. Thanks. So, Kevin, what do you? How do you feel about the keepers? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. I am very disappointed to say that I'm giving it a thumbs down. Ooh. And only because wow. I think the story, the, look, the the story is fantastic. It is very intriguing. You know, the HuffPo article that I read that details all of the stuff that you kind of get in the first two and a half episodes is just really grabbing. But then it just kind of goes on and on in sort of an aimless way. Now, look, one of the things I just want to say because I don't think we mentioned it, is that we recognize that for a lot of people. Abuse in the church is something that's real in their lives or in their family. And by saying we don't like the series is not a reflection on their experience or how we feel about that. One thing I loved about this documentary, and you and I talked about this at length, was that Jean, a.k.a. Mm. Jane Doe, talked about being abused and molested and how just saying that out loud was so life-changing for her Mm -hmm. and like being accepted and loved. And we know... They say one in four, but a lot of people know it's more. Women and girls have had that experience, and just being able to say it and talk about it is so powerful. We know that is goddamn an important thing. It right? is. It is right. So that to say that telling people not to watch this has nothing to do with the you know the legitimate the message, the, the subject matter, right? So that being said. I thought that, like you said, they did a disservice to the story. It went on in a way that 
wasn't really going anywhere. It was it was telling very nice personal portraits Could have been sure. of all the people. Yeah, but as far as whether or not this is a documentary investigation or whether it was shedding new light, it, it really didn't. And, and I think that the dead wood could have been trimmed from that tree. But, you know, in the end, I really did come to like and wonder more about Sister Kathy. I mean, here was a person that, like you said, was, you know, ahead of her time, wanted to get out into the, the real world and reach youth in a, in a turbulent time in our history. And she went out and, like, you know, took the habit off and went into the public school. Oh, no. And Where I, is this going? <laughs> I'm just saying that I looked at those photos of her, like, wearing the clothes that she did. And right? I really think yeah, she, she probably needed a new wardrobe. Yeah, she probably <laughs> she probably could have done with a subscription to La Tote. Oh, jeez, Nice I job, La Toby. Yeah. I love me some La Tote, too. Yeah, La Tote is a fashion subscription box that sends brand name clothing and accessories right to your door for Buddy one. loves it. For one low <laughs> monthly fee. Even the dogs love La Tote. You can get up to seven hundred dollars worth of fashion from designer brands like BCBG, Max. Me, I've done it. Oh, really? Yeah. Nike, <laughs> Rebecca Minkoff. You get all that stuff more all month long. And here's the best news. You ready for this? Yeah. Newsflash: They have maternity totes. Nice. Perfect Ooh. if you're expecting because your size is ever changing for nine months. You don't have to buy maternity clothes that you will never wear again. It's freaking brilliant. It is brilliant. Rebecca, I was thinking there was one thing keeping us from having that next child. No, that's not and it. And it was the was, it wasn't the wardrobe thing. No, it's the fact that I would, I don't know, throw myself down the stairs if we, we were going to have another child. Oh but my that's god, it's horrible! We could, have, we could have a whole new podcast: three crime writers and a little baby. Oh god! Oh my god! It'd be the it, worst. Could, it could be a whole thing. Uh, but, follow Rabia on Twitter, and that's all you need to know about why we don't have another child. You really want to be like dealing with pooping right now? No, but but whether it was maternity <laughs> stuff, I mean, you love Latote. Oh, I do. I love it. Give me your personal endorsement, Rebecca Lavoie. All I have to do is Laura Bricker knows this. Sometimes you mm-hmm. get an item in your Latote, and you end up wearing that item for like the entire time you have the Latote, and you send back the Latote, and you keep that item. You buy that item, and, and you, you send back what you don't and want. And then you wear it for the next three days after you've sent back your Latote. Yes, I'm wearing one right now, actually. I, I got a shirt this week, and I was like, I'm going to send this back. And then I was like, I wore it today, and someone's like, wow, that that's really a complimentary this shirt. I from Latote. Like, the scarf The scarf you're wearing is from Latote, yeah. And Laura, I believe you and I both bought the same cardigan, the oversized, mm-hmm. like, boy, like, striped black and white cardigan. You saw yeah. Me in a picture on my Facebook page, and you were like, "Did you get that from Latote?" I'm like, "I did. Yes, I did. It's that was best. my first Latote purchase. It's I loved best. it. It's it's just thirty nine dollars a month. You can wear everything in your first Latote package. You can put it back, get another one, get another one. Wear the things that you like. I send them back fast. I got a lot send of them back. That's fine. Latote <laughs> loves that because eventually you're gonna buy that shirt that you just absolutely have to have. Hell yeah. Go to Latote, L-E-T-O-T-E dot com, and get started for as little as $39 a month and get 50% off your first month when you enter promo code CRIME at checkout. Once you sign up, you'll receive your complimentary customized tote within days. Wear what you want, return everything in the mail when you're done, and repeat all month long. Again, that's Latote dot com. Enter the code CRIME. And feel fabulous with fashion delivered right to your door. And when you buy this stuff, it's like super affordable. It's not like the same price you would have bought it for if you like went to the department store. Just saying. Anything else, Kevin? 
Yeah, we are also brought to you today by Audible. Oh, our favorite old friends. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content. So if you were listening to... I don't know, a book like Crime on the Fens by Joy Ellis. On Audible, you would experience things like the hair raising on the back of your neck. Ooh. Or goosebumps. <laughs> you would. You get you get goosebumps. <laughs> I see it. You can start a 30-day trial and your first Audible book is free. So to learn more, go to audible.com slash crime. That's audible.com slash crime. Crime. We love ourselves some Audible, don't we, guys? Cannot get enough of Audible. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime Crime of of the the Week. week. I want to thank Newser for this Crime of the Week. As you know, Kevin, it's a great source of, what, weird crime Newser, absolutely, yeah. That's right. A brawl broke out in a middle school classroom in Georgia this week, but it wasn't between students. It was between a teacher and a staff member. Ooh. Students say the two women were arguing about a male teacher for a few minutes before things got physical. Quote, everyone was screaming like, stop, 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 one Stone Mountain Middle School student tells CBS 46, which obtained a video of the fight from a student's cell phone. Really? The woman, who was reportedly a teacher's assistant, is seen punching and pulling hair. (laughs) <laughs> students say another adult ultimately broke up the fight, and then school officials entered the classrooms, went through students' cell phones, forcing them to delete any recordings of the fight. Quote, nobody apologized, one student said. I think they were trying to push it under the rug. So they got no all one except would know about one. It. That's right. So basically what happened is that these two staff members have been charged with disorderly conduct. Students are claiming that there is some school district conspiracy as a cover-up. Parents are complaining because there were no letters sent home. But here's my question. Here we are, guys. It's June. We are almost to the end of the school year. Right, right. Can you blame these teachers for needing to blow off some steam? Or is there something else going on in this school? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Well, it sounds like there was some baby mama drama going on, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, you can't blame. I was I, I was in my son's school today. I go in there every Wednesday to help out with writing, and the kids are already, like, checked out. The teachers are frustrated because the kids are checked out. Everybody's done, you know, and because we live here in New Hampshire, land of the snow, we still have, like, almost another month left. So, I mean, honestly, something like this could happen in my school district soon. Toby, what do you think of this story? Is it just end of the year blowing off of steam, or uh, what do you think? Do these guys deserve to maybe get in some fist fights in the classroom in front of their students? Isn't Stone Mountain where they have that enormous, like, Confederate monument, like, carved into the side of a mountain? I'm just going to say yes, because you said that was so. Because <laughs> you know everything. Um, the question was, is that okay for them to fight in Isn't this middle school classroom? Is this just blowing off at the end of school? I mean, come on. Don't these teachers deserve to, like, I don't know, maybe throw down in front of their just students? Just fight each other? Just <laughs> fight each <laughs> other? I think that is, I mean, what are we trying to tell our kids? Like, if you get frustrated or tired... Just start freaking punching people. Oh, yeah, I have issues with the allegations of the like school coming in and like forcing students to delete well, that's, all the videos I mean, there's, on their phone. There, there's nothing good that happened there. Like the fight, they shouldn't have happened, and they shouldn't have like confiscated the phones. They should have sent home a letter. You know, I mean, there's. It seems like everything went wrong. Apparently, CBS 46 obtained a video anyway. What do you think, Kevin? Were the teachers blowing off steam? Uh, so, so this was the fight was over a male staff member. Apparently, it did was. they say whether it was like the German teacher or the custodian? It was the school chaplain. No, I'm no. Just kidding. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. 
Uh, um, no, they shouldn't be doing that. I mean, God, that's like, look, it's almost the end of the year, and so I know our kids keep saying, like, oh, in class today they played a movie. <laughs> like every which, single And day. I say, like, the movie is the new film strip, right? <laughs> so, like, when it's time to check out, it's like we're going to watch a movie. Just so long as it's not Fight Club, <laughs> I think they're okay. It's true. There have been a lot of reports of movies in the classroom That's at our right. house the last That's couple right. of weeks. Uh, how does this relate to algebra? I don't know. I do not know how all these movies relate to American history slash honors English slash German. I don't know. Yeah. You could watch a historical movie. Why are you watching Rocky? <laughs> all right, Laura Bricker, before we wrap it up, I have a very important question for you. Do we have a cat of the week this week? We have a dog of the week this week. (gasps) My favorite kind of animal. Pray tell, Laura. (laughs) Well, this is after our last crime of the week where we had the car pooper person. Yes. So this week, our dog of the week is Sully. He's a great senior dog, but he does have a little issue with pooping in cars. Nice. Um, Sully. And so his owner, Kate Cassidy, sent us a nice picture of Sully and his little, um, he has a nice little little golfing shirt get up. Um, I don't know if that helps with pooping in the car or not, but he looks like a very nice dog despite his issues. They're all good dogs, Brent. Kevin, how, how would you pronounce Sully's name if you were talking about Sully? Hey, Sully. <laughs> Sully, bring your dog over here. <laughs> what kind of dog is that? He's a golden retriever, he's right? A, he's a golden retriever. <laughs> what kind of dog is that? Should be a pug. Tell your mother I said hi. Yeah. yeah Are you going to take that dog to Dunks? Like, yeah, to help with his he pooping. Looks like a dog. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't think, yeah, he's like a German shepherdy labby kind of cross dog. That's my apology to everybody in Nova Scotia. It is. It for really doing is. my Southie accent. It really is. Hey, Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to tweet to you, uh, reach you online, may perhaps submit their pets for Cat of the Week, how can they do so? At Laura Bricker. And that's L-A-R-A, correct? That is L-A-R-A, Despite yes. my pronunciation. Toby it's Ball. my husband's. <laughs> Toby Ball, if our listeners want to tweet to you, learn more about you, how can they find you online? I'll tell you that in just a second. First, if I may, I'd make a, uh, a quick book recommendation. Do it. Because if uh, this whole Catholic church and, you know, the city of Baltimore stuff you find kind of interesting, uh, True Confessions was both a movie with De Niro and uh, Robert Duvall, but it was also a great book. Don't you mean uh, Bobby Duvall? He's the best. Yes. <laughs> the book is called True Confessions. It's by John Gregory Dunn. It's really, really good, but it, it, it's mostly about the Catholic Church in L.A. and sort of the L.A. police and the L.A. sort of powers that be. And when you read it and you want to tell me about how much you liked it, it's at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn. Award nominated podcast. Award nominated. How can folks That's even better, find like, you? Award submitted podcast. <laughs> uh, you were long listed for the, long-listed, yes. <laughs> how for can, the MacArthur Genius Grant. I've been long listed. How can people find you online for your podcast and your personal Twitter? Hey, account. you can find me at, at Kevin P. Flynn. And at Law and Order Pod. At Law and Order Pod. It's <laughs> wicked awesome Twitter. And if you want to connect with me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. This little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. I swear to God, if you tweet us, we will tweet you back. You can also find us on Facebook. Look for us there and chat with other podcast fans because they are awesome. If you go to our website, you can sign up for our newsletter and you can please, please, please buy stuff using our Amazon link. You can bookmark it. You can use it to buy your dog food or your cereal or your automotive products. 
or your books or streaming movies. A little tiny piece of what you buy goes to support this show. It doesn't cost you a penny extra. If you listen on iTunes, please rate and review this show. It helps us stay on the charts. Our line producer is the handsome budding filmmaker, Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble. This show was recorded in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media. It used to be called Studio C, and before that, it was a closet we briefly considered turning into a home distillery. <laughs> On behalf of all the crime writers, thank you so much for listening. We will catch you later. Should I tell you about my favorite segments of Crime Writers On during the commercials? Go for it. What are your favorite segments of Crime Writers On? I love anything with Kevin. Um, I love when Toby's like, I have to put my fiction writer hat on. We're like, we get it, Toby. You don't write nonfiction. Also, Bricker. I love the cat lady. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Rebecca. You know, it's a really good way to get people who listen to your podcast to listen to your other podcast. By putting that other podcast on your first podcast? That's right. So I'm going to play the trailer for my new podcast right now. It's okay. happening. Okay. I can't wait. I'm going to go get some popcorn. Let me know how it goes. Hello. Hey, Patrick. Can you hear me? I can. Hello. I have actually have a question for you before we chat. Um, yeah. We've talked about how I feel about tiny house people? <laughs> yes. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is HGTV and Me, the podcast about all things weird and wonderful on everyone's favorite DIY network. So we're watching the episode, New York Bed and Breakfast Owners Go Tiny with Their Teenage Son. That sounds promising. <laughs> <laughs> that I am still amazed that people who want a tiny house will walk in, and the first thing they'll complain about is how small it is. 100% of the time. This is so small. It's a tiny house. You're on a show called Tiny, tiny Houses. Hunters. It's not a bait and switch. You might know me from my podcast, Crime Writers On, and These Are Their Stories, a Law & Order podcast, but that doesn't matter. All you need to know about me for this show is I love HGTV. And even more than watching it, I love talking about it. And on this podcast, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to people I know. I'm going to talk to people I don't know. I'm going to eavesdrop on other people's conversations about HGTV shows like Love It or Listed and Flip or Flop. And yes, Tiny House Hunters. Would you move in with me for any period of time into a tiny house? No. But I would never move into a tiny house with anyone. Don't even get me started on the fucking tiny houses. <laughs> Let's just note her profession, which they don't mention in this clip. Sound healer. <laughs> you, know, you know, there are times like when you watch HGTV and you're like really jealous of the properties. Yeah. This is not one of those times. No? No. I'm just saying there's no way that house does not smell like a moldy fish tank. <laughs> in like three weeks. <laughs> so... You want to talk to me about something you love or love to hate or hate to love about HGTV? Give me a call. Leave a message on my podcast hotline, 
888-222-2241. And along with my friends and fellow podcasters, you could end up talking to me about HGTV. Check out our website for different ways to get in touch, hgtvpodcast.com. How does a composting toilet work? Do you know? Well, is it a composting toilet or is it a moldering toilet? Oh, my God. <laughs> Would you move into a tiny house with me if... It's what I really, no, really wanted. Just, just no, there's no way. Zero percent chance? Zero percent chance. HGTV and me will launch later this summer. Until then, you can subscribe on iTunes, tell your friends about it, and find us on Twitter at HGTV Podcast and check out our website hgtvpodcast.com Partners in Crime Media Thanks to MHZ Choice for sponsoring today's podcast. MHZ Choice features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. Try MHZ Choice free for 30 days, and after that, you'll save 50% off your first month. Visit mhzchoice.com slash writers and use the code writers at checkout. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.